Hello, everyone, and welcome to Documentation Not Included. It's Thursday, 7 p.m. British time. We're live here on twitch.tv slash DNI stream. It is time for the final show of 2019. And it's time to take our gloves off on a topic that's been brewing in the world of contracting for a while. You've heard us mention it a few times. Uh, so welcome to episode 11.10. I are 35. And no, I'm not talking about my age. <laughs> my name is Josie Howarth, and I am joined, and I wrote this down specifically so that I would get this right, but I am joined by the reefback leviathan to my cuttlefish, Chris Seabach. That is, that is a subnautica reference, and I love it, because <laughs> that's my favorite game that has ever been created and that is a bold statement it was such a wonderful experience that game but this is not a gaming podcast this is no, a podcast it's not. all about but it is it is the last you know episode of the year and i actually finally got something where you weren't sitting there going what is she talking about the, the, <laughs> the thing is is there's three things going on obviously as soon as we go live there was a little technical issue so i hope we caught the very first part of your intro there was uh, a lag on my pc so i hope i'm sorry if that was uh, a problem somebody said that uh we're switched. we've got a gui issue which i shall i can't sort out now so i'm afraid we're just gonna have to be josie's gonna have to be jamie and jamie's gonna have to be josie and uh, my nas kicked off with a backup so I, if anyone can hear that i'm sorry oh oh <laughs> live hey anyway so yes hello to everybody <laughs> and hello to everybody in twitch chat as always we are a live show so please do get involved ask us any questions and uh, i know there's going to be a few contractors uh, from my linkedin uh, watching tonight um, a few people have threatened to watch live so please do get involved <laughs> and, uh, uh, and get them so let's uh, let's start off with introducing our guest today we've had him on the show before uh, we we uh, hope well, Jamie, Jamie is in fact similar to me. He's a, a contractor, uh, so that's why we've got him on today to to level me out a little bit, hopefully. Um, so, Jamie, just please do tell everybody what you do, and uh, I'll let you go off. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, like I said before, I'm pretty sure I said the same things uh, last time. I'm a .NET developer, I'm a contractor, I'm podcast producer, editor, person who says er a lot. Um, yeah, that's pretty much me, I think. <laughs> to be fair, you know, the reason why I was like, Jamie, should just totally come on is for like the past three weeks, our Discord, and if you haven't joined our Discord, you should totally should do so, has been full in our ranting room about IR35 and the two biggest culprits who are constantly vocalizing their opinions are the two here. So I'm like, you know what? Yeah, let, let's do that. But before we go, let us get into our icebreaker question. As always, we start out with this just to peel back the layers, get to know ourselves a little better, or to just basically showcase our personalities. So my question for everyone is this. If your five-year-old self suddenly found themselves inhabiting your body, what is the first thing they would do? Five-year-old. No, I wasn't doing that at five. <laughs> um, uh, okay. Guest, guests on her. <laughs> if your five-year-old self found themselves in your current body at this moment in time, what's the first thing they would do? 
right now whilst yeah. we're on the show well you know it, today kind of a <laughs> okay. thing it doesn't necessarily have to be on the show because goodness gracious me um he'd probably get super excited about uh the nintendo switch and start playing all the games that i have on there and say hey this mario 64 has upgraded a little bit um although mario 64 was now when i was five but there you go uh yeah that's probably it that's probably the same option yeah so mm. in 1987, which is when I was five, I don't think I had a computer. I'm not sure. I genuinely can't remember when I first got my Commodore 64, which was the first computer I ever had. I could have done. So I would, again, probably with Jamie, I'd be doing something with games if I had a computer and I was aware of them. Because as soon as I knew what they were, I, I that was it. That was the rest of my life. You know, computer games, programming, programs, all that kind of thing. But yeah, it would have to be. It would have to be getting excited about my console collection downstairs. I, I, this wouldn't be interested in this topic. I'll tell you that that much. <laughs> I'd be straight downstairs playing with my fifteen consoles at a setup. See, I find it funny. You guys will be playing with them. My five-year-old self will be dismantling them. I, I that's like my obsession when I was younger. I took things apart, and so it would be one of those things. If I found myself like this, I'd be like, "What's this?" there's got to be a way to get into it. Once I get into it, I'm like, okay, well, what does this do? Like, I was really weird. I mean, granted, my earliest was, you know, when I was like two or something and I was looking for the tiny people in the stereo system. So I dismantled it and got really upset because I couldn't find the tiny people. Um, but, you know, that that's that's just the nature of how I go. So. Yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, before I let you go off on a tangent, Chris, Yes, a.k.a. before I release the hounds into the world of IR35, just a heads up for everyone who is listening in the future, along with all of you fantastic folks who are joining us live. This is going to be a two-hour special. It is the last one of our season, and this is not a topic we want to uh, gloss over. The impact is too severe, critical, controversial even. So, yeah. So the thing, the thing about this particular topic, so this topic is about IR35, and let me give a, a quick introduction to, uh, to those people who are listening. I know we have people from all over Europe and people from the, the US as well, and again, if you're from anywhere other than that, please let us know, because we're interested where, where our listeners come from. Um, the IR35 is a set of legislation, tax legislation in the UK, that affects freelancers and contractors in its simplest form. There are... As with probably most tax regimes across the entire world, the UK tax system is absolutely crazy. It's it's archaic. It's been loads of new things have been tagged onto it, and this is no different. And there are changes that are coming in next year that are going to significantly impact uh, our industry and the way that we operate as well. I'm I'm sure Jamie will have a say in a minute, and I will let him let him. Uh, let him get on to his his side of things it worries me because i although i consider myself sitting well outside of this legislation i quite often work with clients that don't fully understand it and they put me in a gray area okay so, you're going you're going deep into you're you're starting into the topic let's yeah. pull back just a little bit okay now this 
particular piece of legislation, it has an impact on private sector and public sector. There are people who are not going to know what that means mm -hmm. because of their locations. So let's take a moment and define public sector and private sector. Okay. And then I will state something that was told to me, and this is where my foundation came from for IR35. IR35 is trying to decide whether someone should be a payee or a B2B kind of contract. So that's like an oversimplification, but yeah. you know, these are things I'd like to at least define for people who may have no concept because they may be located in a different country. And if we can define the concepts, they can turn to their country's legislation to see what impacts you know it'll have on them if they have anything. So Most very, countries do. Very briefly then, our private sectors and public sectors, um, we have a public sector work, which is government-based work. So this is pe people that's working for the NHS, which is our health system, people that work for uh, local authorities, which are our councils, which are the people that run our towns and cities. Um, the police, that's a public sector organization. Um, but we, we as contractors can work in all of these places. We can mm -hmm. work, you know, uh, I've never heard of a, f uh, fire, uh, a fire, en fire engine, fire... What do, we call, what do we call fire the fire brigade firefighters fire. what, what's that industry what's it called the fire something <laughs> fire services it's fire services yeah so they they're you know the putting out <laughs> fires people i've never heard of a contract in in that in that industry but i'm sure they exist that's another public sector the private sector are corporations businesses most of my clients are private sector clients the problem, well, what what the legislation applies to both sectors as things stand right now. However, in 2017, um, changes were introduced that meant that the clients were responsible for determining the status of the workers of of the contractors. And now, in April 2020, those rules are going to get transposed into the private sector as well. So it's going yeah. to affect everybody. So the people who jumped ship from the public sector into the private sector are now also going to be caught by it. And the people are leaving contracting in droves. Lots of people are going permanent. There's an argument to be said that a lot of those people probably should be permanent. But again, mm -hmm. this is an opinion more than anything. There's also arguments to say that, um, that the legislation is not very well thought through and is damaging to the UK flexible workforce. And the flexible yeah, from, economy. From what was pointed out to me, when it comes to IR35, the entire thing was set up because, for some strange reason, the UK government believed that contractors in specific were not paying appropriate tax. Mm -hmm. And this is really what it comes down. This is why this entire thing got brought up to begin with. They, I think it was something like 1.2 billion um, of taxes weren't being paid because contractors weren't classifying themselves appropriately. Because someone has to pay tax <laughs> you so know the interesting thing about that that <laughs> particular thing at the moment is is that given the recent changes to how uh, dividends are taxed so as a contractor and i'll make no bones about this this is advice that any accountant will give a contractor you take a small wage of up to something like I think the the limit's eleven thousand pounds a year or something. You take I a small it was wage. Like eight something. I don't know. My it was eight, was but it, it got increased yeah. in recent years. But it's eleven. Right. It's probably going to go up to twelve next year or something. But uh, again, none of these figures, and we are not lawyers. None of these figures are accurate. They're just kind of you know picking things out of the air. So 
what we generally do is we pay we pay we pay ourselves this eleven thousand pounds and then we pay the rest in dividends which didn't have any tax up to a certain amount because we because of the convoluted uk tax system we got taxed at 10 percent, and then we got a 10 percent rebate on that tax it's just i don't even know where that came from or why it existed but that's how it used to be now dividends are taxed in a 7.5 percent band and then a 30 percent and then a 40 percent band very similar to income mm -hmm. so um, we are now paying roughly, roughly the same amount as an employee, maybe a little bit less. If an equivalent contractor moves into a permanent job of an equivalent skill set, roughly they will be paying 40% less tax with this, these changes that are coming in in April. So the government are actually getting less tax. They're just getting more national insurance tax because of the way that the taxes are distributed. So overall, we pay corporation tax, we pay uh, VAT, we pay... Uh, VAT is not really considered in this whole thing. No, not. It's not, it, it's not we, because the, of the way that it works, but the, the, we, we pay corporation tax, we pay national insurance, um, employers' national insurance, employee national insurance, and then we also pay PAYE, which is, the, um, which is our what employees pay. Uh, their their tax basically, so we are in a in a state now where the government are going to have a max mass exodus of contractors. They're going to get forty percent less tax from those equivalent contractors, and it's they're not getting more money. It just doesn't make sense, like physically. Well, <laughs> the, yeah, I mean the 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 real simplified version of it is at this current moment in time, if you are in a contractor in the private sector and you are contracting under your own company, that is usually a limited company that you've set up, um, you could declare yourself to be outside of IR35. That it sat on your shoulders as the company as uh, to reflect accurately to, um, I'm about to say the NHS, reflect naturally to our health system. No, reflect naturally to HMRC, the taxes you should be paying. And now what's happening is the onus of deciding who is inside or outside of this, you know, ruling of who is responsible for the tax now will sit on clients. Mm -hmm. And the challenge, uh, or I think one of the biggest fears we all have is and this is, I think, why some people are leaving. And I'm asking this question to both of you, but I'm going to have Jamie speak first because you and I have been, like, on this already. So I'm going to let him speak. <clears throat> but the big fear right now is if a client you have decides that you are actually, you know, responsible for paying your taxes. Like... Okay. Officially, that, that if the thing is, I'm going to the, stop and... the official. I'll just just correct you slightly there. So officially, what know, will happen as of April is there are there are two definitions. There are two um, three parties involved potentially in in the whole transaction. Now there is the client uh, who are classed as the end engager or something. There is the fee payer, which could be the client, but it could also be another intermediary such as an agency or a payroll company or somebody else and then mm. there is you the contractor the the there's no legal definition for a PSC which is a personal services company which is what we are um but that the fee payer could be basically the fee payer is responsible for deducting the taxes so that could be the client or the agency but 
the client is responsible for making the determination regardless the end client and and right. that's that that can creates such disparity and such confusion across the entire thing because i mean and then or there's you're about this, to go somewhere but the, i'm about the, to but go was, i'm about to explore yeah. about the complications around the tax the, the, the thing that stands out to me is that and you guys correct me if you're wrong any client you've ever worked with they're risk adverse correct most of the time yes you know so are they really going to classify you the way that you should be classified under your belief or do you believe that they're going to do whatever it's going to take to protect them and not have to worry about, you know, paying. What do you think, Jamie? Or something. So in an ideal world, I'd like to say, of course, they're going to look after the contractor. But no, like a, a business, I mean, any business, um, any client of ours, of yours, of mine, of Josie's, of whoever's, has to obviously look after running their own business. So they're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that they and the company that they've run and the shareholders and the profits are unaffected by it. So I feel like a lot of a lot of the uh, the bigger businesses, especially because there's a again, I'm not a legal expert, but my understanding is that there's slightly different not rules, but slightly different cases for very large private companies and very small private companies. Um, and that's based on my understanding. But I feel like the really large companies are going to essentially well, I've already seen it happen with a number of my clients. They essentially, they've axed all of their contractors and pushed them into um, permanent roles. There's a permanent or, or umbrella companies, which is another thing we will yeah. cover later on. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's, there's basically the, the legislation um, stipulates either, you, if it's a public sector client, it doesn't matter how big that public sector client is, they are caught by these, these new rules. Um, if it is a small company, which is, I think it's under 5 million, again, these might be wrong, yeah. under 5 million on the budget sheet or 10 million on the budget sheet, under 2 million or 3 million turnover a year and under 50 employees. If it, I thought it was 1.5 for the turnover. Uh, it doesn't uh, matter. I'm, I'm probably there, very wrong with like, all of those there's, numbers. There's but, numbers that yeah. are actually being used in this. Your class, if you're classed as a small company, um, the old legislation, which is Chapter 8 in the um, employment employment act or whatever it's called i've got i've got it written down somewhere um uh, applies if they are caught by these new rules then chapter 10 applies which is uh, which all essentially overrides the the rules that we're used to which is a new set of legislation which needs to be learned and it talks about how this convoluted deemed calculation is now going to work it, it's absolute it's an absolute minefield so everyone's going to want to naturally work for smaller companies the government have also put stipulations in place to make sure that companies do not change their structure and create a small subsidiary or a small company to get around the rules. The problem is, is I have clients that actually already are structured in that way, where they have like massive conglomerate companies, where they have smaller companies for different reasons. But I work for the smaller companies who have no budget. They can just about ba barely afford to take me on, you know, and they take me on to do the work that I need to do. And then, but they're, got, they're now caught by the rules. So they now have to determine my status for me and issue this status determination statement. It's, it's madness. Well, see, all three of us right here can pretty much state that we don't see ourselves as being in the IR35, correct? 
yep. absolutely that, not. Our companies, etc. So why do we have this determination? Why do we believe this to be true based on what we know about IR35? Now, I stress, if anyone listening, anyone watching believes we have something wrong or has something to say, please get in touch with us so that we can book you for one of our first episodes in the new year because this is not going away. Mm -hmm. And there is so much misinformation out there, so much misunderstanding out there. And we really want to get this right because we want to follow the law. But at the same time, we also understand the, as Jamie has said, we've seen the loss happening in the contracting world. We're seeing people go, screw it, I'm going to go permanent. I just can't be, I can't put up with this. And then we've also got, sorry, Jamie, go on. I was just going to say that uh, I think a part of that, the misinformation part is um, a lack of, well, I mean, it is a lack of knowledge on the subject. And I think... But part of it is some some clients, some companies, some businesses are treating this in the same way that a lot of people treat GDPR. They're waiting until the very last moment and then they're going to do something about it. But the problem is that what if they wait too Email long? Email spam. Yeah. Well, Everyone it, remembers when the GDPR kicked in and all of a sudden you're like the week leading up to that, your email was flooded with all kinds of stuff. And you're just like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? Uh, I think sorry. the interesting thing as well is that that some clients aren't just, some clients are forcing particular models. Diff there's, there's lots of different models out there as well as how they're going to engage with with contractors. Some people are saying we are no longer engaging with contractors whatsoever. We are going to convert everybody to pay AYE employees. Other people are saying, right, we're going to move everybody into an umbrella model, which is a kind of an umbrella is a company that has multiple, probably thousands of contractors on their books and they pay them like employees and they give them certain employment rights, but essentially they're paying the same tax. They get no benefits whatsoever. They do get some statutory um, employment benefits, such as accruing holiday. And um, I don't know if they get sick pay, but they get some benefits. But really as a business, as a legitimate business, I, I operate as a business, not, I mean, don't get me wrong, the tax benefits are brilliant. But it's not about that for me. It's about the autonomy over my work. And it's about the ability for me to be able to say no to somebody if I don't want to do something for them. If I, I feel like it's outside of the remit, it, the ability to control how I, how, where, and when I do that work, you know? And I mean, these are the, these are, we're going to get onto this later on, how we actually determine the status of, an, of a worker or how HMRC sees the status of a, a worker to be determined. Yeah. But that, that's the problem is I do it for for those reasons and I've done it for those reasons for years and years. I like working with multiple clients. I like having small projects and I like having long-term projects and long-term relationships, but that does not in any way, shape or form make me an employee of that client. I provide them the flexibility, you know, that, that, that they need to fulfill a particular project for a short period of time. And by virtue of working with them, I have to work with their employees and I have to work with them to achieve that end goal because some of the projects are too big for just me on my own to handle you know it's it's interesting because when i look at the things that i do within my company there's one that is obviously completely out like there's no way the remit would work because the servers aren't run 
like for example, web hosting and the things like that, the servers aren't run by my clients. They're run by my company. The servers are maintained 100% by my company. I have a company that pays my company to handle the security, the maintenance, the upgrades, um, occasional changes, things like that. That is literally a business to business transaction. There is no way that could even fall into the remit. However, I look at it from the perspective of the things that I do on the more of the virtual assistant side of things, you know, coming in as either a project manager or as someone who's coming in to handle community involvement or like marketing sides of things that could, if viewed a certain way, could fall very much so into that because it's, um, it's like, uh, if you could hire someone to perform this job in the seat, then therefore, you know, it's like, how, I guess really what I want to come down to is how do we define whether you're in or out? I mean, what are the questions we should be asking ourselves here? It's a lot of it. <laughs> it's such a gray area because it's subjective. There are rules that they've put that the HMRC have defined, uh, which we'll go into in a minute, <clears throat> but it's subjective and it's also extremely fluffy. And, and like scrambled the, eggs you know what keeps what coming up like? you know what keeps coming up intent the intent of the parties that is that i mean that happens in that that comes up in case law a lot again i'm not a lawyer i've done a little bit of case law kind of looking into figuring out how how and when ir35 cases are won because there's, there's a fair few of them and a lot of them are high profile in in our industry at least anyway um and it's, it's about how the parties intend to engage. If you go in as a virtual assistant, let's say you're a project manager for a particular project, yeah? And mm -hmm. that project has uh, six other workers working, working with you, mm -hmm. um, and you manage those workers. If you go in and the company are doing anything, if they've given you a job title and they're doing, they're telling you when you can work, the hours that you work, and it's not dictated by the project itself, and they're telling you where you can work or how you can work and you have to ask them for time off and you have to in, you know you feel obligated to tell them that you're working for another client them kind of then that indicates that you're under their control now you're shaking your head a lot Josie I, I'm shaking my head a lot because it is explicitly stated in my contract as to I make the decisions my company decides so, when you know when time is happening like, my company makes that you don't get it actually it says something along the lines of you do not treat the you know the contractor for this company who is being loaned to you to handle whatever the job is like an employee and i mean it is explicitly written that's that way. now, now you, you've went now i know that again this is this is a this is a key point here and this is a point that hmrc argue again and again and again what's written in the contract if if what is written in the contract doesn't happen in reality then you can still be caught regardless of what the contract says. So mm. now I know, I know for a fact, Josie, with everything that we have lots of private conversations and we, we, you know, we know each other fairly well outside of this podcast and this, this hour that we do, I know for a fact, I would have absolutely no, no worries whatsoever defending your position in court. You are 110% outside of the regulations in everything that you do because you have a business mind and you approach all of your clients like a business and you mm. you make sure that your relationship is set in stone by the contract and you adhere to it yes you're flexible and yes you're the chief love officer for some for one of your companies <laughs> that's the name 
am I call for myself? Like, but, like that's the thing. Inside of the the thing, I don't state that I actually have a job title. If anything, I'm just a contractor or something. Or consultant is actually probably one of the more common ones. Um, but yeah, I I jokingly call myself the chief love officer. So the difference is the difference is is between a what I refer to as, and it may very well be taken in a derogatory way, but I don't care. Um, it, a bum on seat contractor, a somebody, a permutractor, somebody who has taken a job and is in works in the office alongside people, uh, alongside people that do very similar jobs, and is not working necessarily to a scope or a project. They have a job title. I have been taking on as a .NET developer. I am working for this company and I can get moved around by my line manager between different places and I have to fill in the internal timesheets and I have to fill in the, and go to all the internal meetings. That is somebody okay. who is caught by the regulations. Now, here's the question that I have for you because I, I never, in the stuff that I do, run into the situation. I also don't deal with recruiters. You two mm -hmm. do. And I know for a fact that in the past couple of weeks, even couple of months, both of you have run into situations where the recruiter has tried to shove a job title on you. Jamie? Yeah, uh, I agree completely. And I think it goes back down to education, I guess. So you've got, the, you've got three parties involved with, except for yourself, you've got three parties involved with if you go through a recruitment agency or any kind of thing like that, you've got the recruiter who obviously is communicating with between the two businesses, your business and the client. And then you have the business, whoever, maybe they have a HR department that deals with this. Maybe they have um, someone whose job it is to maintain these contracts. And then you have the people you're working alongside of. Um, and there's often a very big disconnect between what you're contracted to do and what you're allowed to do and how you're allowed to be treated between each of those three people. So let's say you get a, a, con a, a contract from a recruiter and they say, yep, it is, we've had it verified, it's outside of I-35, you'll be doing these things, you don't have a job title, here's the work you need to be doing, get it done when you can, you have X amount of time, you could do it from wherever, that all sounds brilliant. And then you start working for the business and the business says, Yep, that's absolutely fine. Do the work whenever you can. Get it done in this amount of time. You can use whatever technologies, whatever hardware, wherever you want to work from. Brilliant, do that. We're not going to control you. We're not going to do anything. And then you get into the very first day of doing the work and you're called into a stand-up meeting at 10.30 that mm. so you have to be in the building for. And it's communicating. I think you've said it before, Chris. It's communicating to the people you're working alongside those individuals I, I, you can't really tell me to come in and be here because for this meeting as soon because... as you do that you're seen as a you're seen as somebody who's not a team player who is being awkward for the sake of it and the thing That's is a it. lot of the time in that instance i mean i haven't been caught by that for quite a while that particular scenario for quite a while because of the way that i've engaged with my clients especially for the last two or three years i say i've been extremely focused on consultancy um, I do do stand-ups. I mean, I was I was involved with a company that did stand-up. I was a I was a solution architect, or my official title within the company was solution architect. Um, but I was doing completely disconnected and siloed work. All of the other solution architects, which were in the team that I was apparently in, were all involved in stand-ups, but I wasn't. And I 
I could have been if I just let, you know, I just kind of let my guard down and let them take me on. But I said, look, I don't need, I'm not part of the overall project delivery here. I'm actually doing stuff for the product team. So I'm working directly with the product manager and I'm, I'm working with him and delivering results to him. But I'm still kind of answering to him. So, but the thing is, you can't have a client without having pe having people to answer to. You, they pay me for my skills and my expertise. But it's mm. as soon as you start becoming the employee, as soon as you start having to request things and you know, make, being under the control of the line manager, and and that's when it becomes awkward and see this this might be a thing that really at least from my perspective is a dramatic impact from uh the technology sector trying to have a slightly carefree and je d'avis kind of attitude to their workplace environments and you know we offer pool tables and we have fruit delivered every week and you know like they're trying to uh, i love that eye roll but they're trying to make this kind of team player you know we're all in it for the same product kind of thing but the moment you bring a contractor in how a contractor is seen can be drastically or can be drastic or can drastically influence a team's perception of them which is why we've actually had shows where people have gone gosh darn contractors they're taking our freaking jobs like it's it's one of those things where it's like but that's in a situation where someone is coming in to do the the bum seating kind of contracting, where they're being brought in to do data entry, you know that kind of a thing, and they're not even data entry is fine. You can contract that out. But you can contract that intent. out, but I'm talking about they've gone into the office. You know they participate in the meetings. They fill out the timesheet. They're basically an employee without being an employee. Literally, when you have a situation like that. A lot of people will have the opinion, well, these contractors, you know, they're just coming in to take our jobs and steal all the things we're doing. And then the moment you mention consultant, aka the, basically what the three of us do is we do consultancy work to complete whatever project we've been brought on to do. All of a sudden, we're like the, the worst thing that could ever happen because we're arrogant or like there's certain terminologies uh, or, or certain phrases and perceptions that are applied based on these words. Now, because of that, a lot of people are, would, a lot of companies are like, well, if you just come in as a consultant and have coffee with us every morning, then you can become part of the team player and you won't have these negative repercussions put upon you and all this other, like, I think part of that actually influences it because people don't understand where the delineation is. They don't know where that line should be. And it is 100% a perception thing. There's a difference between running a business 100% by the book down the line by the contract and then also being a person and having to work with other people to achieve a result nothing in this world is achieved with by an individual well i say that that's a very massive generalization but generally the best work in this world is achieved by lots of people you know the yeah. pyramids weren't built by one person you know the, the wonderful things of the world the big pieces of software that we work on Jim, jamie and i work on in the enterprise it, they're not achievable by one no not without a I, lot I of time achievable by one person not i mean and then the more people you add to it the more of a team you need the more project management you need but the thing is it's about it's about how clients package that work up 
at the moment. That's how that's how things are going. We're talking about creating statements of work, creating deliverables, creating short-term goals, I suppose. But then you could also see those short-term goals as control or direction if you're not specifying them in a contract. So this is this is the problem is I am absolutely certain that I sit outside the regs, but the more I think about doing the big project work, which is where a lot of the money is in the contracting world, Mm. The, the the harder it is for me to actually say that's that's actually cl quite clearly outside of the le the legislation. It's it's very difficult to define that. Even as somebody who's as stubborn, let's say, as myself, I am absolutely trying my very best to make sure everybody knows I'm an external consultant. I'm not coming to to that meeting. I'm you know I'm I am I'm here to do this work and deliver it for this time. You know. It, uh, <laughs> Okay, Jamie, quick question for you. You mm -hmm. you believe for yourself that you're outside of IR35. Why? Um, because I put myself into a position where I am in control of the delivery of the work that I do, the, the work that gets. So I don't look for a project. I'm given a project. I don't look for break this down into chunks, I'm told. It, well, no, I, let me rephrase that. So I've, I'm given a project and I'm given a time delivery and I provide my own equipment. I provide my own services. It's a, I try to put myself in the same position as, say, a plumber would, right? You've got a problem with your kitchen sink. You call up a plumber. They may tell you we're only available Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And you say, well, I'll be around Wednesday, Tuesday, for instance, to let you in. You don't stand over their shoulders and say, that's how you're going to do it. You're going to use this. You're going to do it that way. I'm going to give you the tools to do it with because that implies that control. There's that control right there. I've said, when you can come in and do the work, I've given you the tools to do the work. I've told you precisely how to do the work. You're a permanent employee. Whereas what I try to do with the work that I do is I'll turn up with my own tools, with my own experience, with my own knowledge, get given the project and go, right, I will see you again when I have something to deliver. That might be after a sprint. That might be after a day. That might be after a week. That might be after a month. Might be the end of the deadline. But um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm doing the work, and I will deliver that work to whoever it needs to be done. I'm, I'm not. It's not that I don't want to interact with the team. It's not that I don't want to be a team player. But it's because I'm a business working alongside a business. Like Chris said, it's two businesses creating essentially a transaction it's not um jamie is coming in and working alongside the business or working with the business or working with the people in the business it's mm. jamie's business is working alongside jamie's client's business and it's a difficult it's a difficult thing to figure out and especially if you have a team that you're working alongside of um for whatever reason getting that knowledge across without becoming awkward without sounding like you don't want to join in like you don't need to be there or anything that's that's the one of the difficult lines to cross because you know like i said it's all about the education maybe the project manager maybe the delivery manager maybe the technical architect maybe whoever on the team doesn't understand that you know maybe jamie's here today but he has the right to substitute him out for chris tomorrow or david the next day or sarah the next day or whoever it doesn't really matter who is 
doing the work it's it's a company that's doing the work and a lot of people don't see that because they say oh there's jamie he's sitting there doing his work or he's dialing in and he's on the call and he said something kind of silly or you know they see a person they don't see a business okay well here's the one for you all three of us are very quick and happy to defend our positions as to where we're at what are some examples of someone who does fall into it who would be similar to what we do like Let's let's devil's advocate this, right? Let's really challenge our views on why we think we are the way they are, based on what we know about IR35. Because any one of us, and I know plenty of contractors out there who'll sit there and go, yeah, you know, I, I obviously fall outside the scope. You know, it's silly of them for not knowing that. But is that really true? I mean, how, how do we challenge to know the thing so, so there, that you know, you the, know, the, the problem is, is, is case law has covered a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the tests uh, that we use to determine whether or not you are a business, self-employed, independent, in your own right, or whether or not you are an employee. Now, bearing in mind that this, the difference here is, there's an employee for tax purposes, and there's an employee who is full pay away for tax purposes, and also they are fully you know, in, a, in a, a contract of employment with that business. What we have in in our industry is that what, what Jamie's just described, it can it's the gray area. It's the, pro, it's mm. the problem that we have. Um, yeah. I don't, I said, I don't work that like that anymore because, because of the way that I, I approach my clients and I engage with them. I generally don't do stand-ups with people. I generally only, I run the meetings. If I go into a client office, it's for a specific reason, for a specific meeting. I engage with them. I, I issue the contracts. There's no, you know, sometimes there's an agency involved, but if there is, there's an education process with the agency and it's like, right, these are the deliverables I'm agreeing, the, the, et cetera, et cetera. But what it is, it's the intent of the parties. If the business has engaged you, and they are expecting you to do everything that their employees do. And they're expecting you to partake in, not, not just everything, some parts of what the employees do. You could say, right, I'm not coming to the, the general business meetings. You could say, I'm not submitting holidays on your holiday system internally. I'll tell you when I'm off. You could say, um, I'm uh, I have the mutuality of obligation not to accept new pieces of work. But if you are still acting like an employee in every other way, you still very well may be caught. It depends on what the courts say. It depends on what happens if you get investigated and, you know, it, it comes to the point where that decision has to be made by somebody. HMRC will obviously argue that you are caught and you will obviously argue that you're not caught. Um, Everybody's it's got all to... about the money. It's it, all. It's, it's all not. Comes down it's to. not all about the money, though. That's the thing. <laughs> it's. I I would pay the same. I, genuinely, and I'm not saying every contract is the same because a lot of contractors are money motivated, and a lot of contractors just do it because it's an easy way to earn more money. Mm. Doing a long term contract and. The, the time when those contractors tend to lose the job, they go, oh, should I go permanent again? I'm not sure whether or not this legislation is changing or not. They just, they have that mindset of, oh, I don't know when I'm going to get my next piece of work. Whereas I'm constantly working to get new clients and constantly working to network and improve my, um, uh, improve my 
online profile and offline profile. You know, I'm constantly thinking like a business, but a yeah. lot, and I, I don't know what the percentages are because I haven't spoken to all of them, but a lot of the 1.4 million freelancers in this country, uh, depending on how they freelance, if they're contractors, a lot of the contractors, I would say, are probably caught by legislation and they do everything they can when they're aware to make themselves look like they're outside, but they're not thinking like a business. And that's the key difference here. Do you think the gray area really comes into play when you only have one client? Because, you know, if you are a, a contractor and you have multiple clients and you're, you know, doing work on multiple different projects and things like that, it's really hard to say that, hey, you're an employee because I don't mm. know very many technical contracts for permanent employees that don't have some kind of non-compete clause to them in some way shape or form no now, um most contracts you know, do just... these days most contracts uh, contractor contracts agency contracts specifically do not have the non-compete clauses in them they specifically they state that you can work for other people as long as you don't create a competing right. product or but... you know you're not directly in you you that you, you can work for somebody else who's in the gas industry, for example, if you're working for a gas client or whatever, and right. as long as you're not stealing our stuff. But that's all covered by confidentiality and NDAs. So if right, you do that, you know, you're in breach of contract. <laughs> well, think, think about the feeling that is applied to that. I mean, if you have someone who's... Um, I'm not trying to harp on you, Jamie. <laughs> so if it seems like I am, I'm not. But you have someone who's looking to do relatively short to long-term contracts with one company at a time, because that's the way they want to run their business model. Um, and you have two types of people in that who are doing the same thing. You have one who's like, I need to constantly keep you know my employees paid because I'm running my company. It just so happens that I happen to be an employee of my own company, but you know I'm constantly going to be looking for the next job. And then you have the second person who's like, after every contract that crosses their mind, oh, maybe I should become a permie. Like to me, that that you have one right there that is obviously, in my opinion, IR35 got, and you've got one who is obviously not. And again, it goes back to the intent thing that you were saying. But when it comes to being able to say, prove your intent, it's like- So the, the multiple the multiple engagement things that we were talking about, yeah. that you mentioned, the, the, the way the HMRC view that is that each contract, whether you've got multiple clients or not, where you've got one client for two years, or you've got 17 clients all at the same time each contract is viewed individually and assessed individually so you could quite easily work for a public sector client and a private sector client at the same time right and the so. private sector may very well be caught and the public sector might not be it it, right. it, it, it it's about the intent of the parties based on because most of the contracts that we sign these days if you're even remotely savvy as a contractor and you're even remotely long in the tooth with with reading contracts and understanding what you need to look for you will not be signing a contract that is not IR35 friendly these days. So, and the problem is, is HMRC have, have wised up to that? I say problem. It's not a problem because we should be doing what it is and says in the contract. It's about peak contractors taking the list. You know, we're doing a lot of contractor. I'm doing a lot of contractor bashing here, but there's also the, the flip side of this. There's the flip side in that some companies historically have forced contractors to go with the limited company model. They forced them to do that so they do not have to pay tax, their, their pay YE tax, yep. and that they also don't have to 
retain them for long periods of time. They can drop them whenever they want. They've done that, so they have the flexibility to change their workforce as they need. I, I find that really interesting because, you know, um, the big difference, one of the culture shocks I have moving from the United States over into the United Kingdom is in the United States, th pretty much every single contract says, you know, at any moment in time, we can let you go for any reason without any warning at all. And that's very much so United States oriented. In this country, is not so easy. You know, the moment you have a job, there's all kinds of protections to keep you from becoming unemployed. Even if you are the crappiest employee they have ever had at McDonald's, it doesn't matter. You know, there are still things that kind of protect you. And it's interesting to me to see from that perspective, the contractors are actually um, mm, disposable. Mm -hmm. I don't mind being disposable. I know what and I am. <laughs> it's interesting to me that it's the businesses that have actually, in some cases, forced this. Now, it's not always a choice. You're right. And it's not that we're trying to bash the contractors. It's more, I think, we want to make certain that anyone who is in the contracting side of things here in the UK, where IR35 is reflective, we want to make certain that they're, they're, they have an understanding. Because in the end, due diligence is on you. It makes no difference who you are due diligence is always going to be on your shoulders. And it's a matter of trying to make certain you do the best that you can so that if something happens, you can say, I've done the best that I can, you know, because especially if it comes down to proving intent. I mean, I'd love to do a judge render thing where, you know, get to sit there and have him like totally I, funny. For those who don't know who he is, he's just a, a, a TV he is judge. a lawyer here. You know, he's, he's a lawyer here in the United Kingdom who handles basically mediation, but in the form of a judge trial like people's court in the United States and stuff like that. So but it, he's so, so funny. Yeah, he's, anyway. he's good. I like, I like Judge Rinder. Um, I think the, it, it, all comes, it all comes down to this intent thing again. We can, we can have everything and anything written into our contracts. We could have an absolutely bulletproof contract, but it comes down to how the contractors and the clients intend to engage with each other's other on a daily basis. Now, it's not all mm. about, there are going to be situations that where you are outside of IR35, but you need to work on site and you need to work as part of a team and you need to do, be able to do that to actually deliver. In that instance, it's, it's gray, but there, it's, say for example, um, you're working in a secure site for the MOD. You know, you're yeah. working on a public sector contract. They've declared it as out, outside of the IR35 because they have to do that now. As of April 2017, they had to do that in the public sector. Um, and you have to work in a secure room. I've actually done this, not as a contractor, but as a permanent employee, but there were contractors there. Um, and you have to work inside a secure room within a building and you have to work on secure source code and secure systems that are completely siloed. And there's no way that anybody can get in to them from out from the outside world and physically people cannot get on to it, get near these servers and, and the, this you have to be either. there at a specific time you have to be there know. at a specific time you have to be there between nine and uh, nine and cards. five you have to have your yeah. own cards you have to yep. but all of those contractors had a card that said i am a contractor they all essentially if they didn't if they couldn't work for that day they didn't charge for the client for that day um I can't tell you at the time because it was it was before I went contracting. It was actually the place that made me. It, it, I discovered contracting by working there. I knew that it, it would be it was a thing, um, and they they should really have been working to deliverables. I am working on the asbestos replacement piece of software or whatever you know the 
legacy like a piece of legacy software or something I'm, I'm converting it from this to this i am part of a team to do that and i will be del delivering this in the next six months you know that kind of scope is very woolly very open not something that i tend to work to these days but it still should really not be declared as inside the legislation it's still a financial risk there there's still a um a, a risk that i'm not going to get work after this three-month period there's still expenses you know i might happen to i might happen to be working up in up in manchester but i might live in london you know i might I, i've got expenses to cover for that kind of thing they See, want me for my specific skills for a specific t period of time but that's what's caused created the gray area I, I think that's it all comes down to the the definitions and because what you've described there you know someone who regardless of the circumstances is forced into a particular working environment due to the type of project they're working on and you know they're like you know i'm i don't have a guarantee of work after my three-month contract is over and i've turned in my deliverables or if i turn them in early my contract might end and therefore i won't have a contract anymore that is a thing that does happen yep. it's it sounds just like a temporary employee still it you know it's, this like is one. why i think that this is why i think the gray area is so terrifying I mean, it's it's not so easy to let's say we have people who really want to know if they are in it or they're not in it. Like they really want to make certain they're doing it right, but how do you know? Don't use CEST. Now CEST CEST is a wonderful little tool created by HMRC. It's the Czech Employment Status for Tax tool that has just recently been updated. Um <laughs> And that's CEST, by the C way, for those of you who are curious. Now, CEST is something that was is provided by HMRC. It is a questionnaire tool that essentially takes you through a, a process of, of determining whether or not you are an employee for tax purposes as a contractor. You, you, if you're an employee, you don't need to fill this in because you're an employee, you know. Um, also, it also, help, it also helps, inverted commas, helps... Um, self-employed people who are different from contractors contractors are employed by their own company their own limited company yes. and they provide business services to their clients whereas someone who is self-employed does not have a company necessarily per se they are self-employed and they fill in their self-assessment at the end of the year which we do as well but it's beside the point point. Um, and they pay different classes of national insurance um, class two and class four i think um they the tool is there to determine whether or not self-employed people should also pay tax as and i'm not an expert in that area at all i don't know much about the self-employed world and how that works but nope. i have also run businesses alongside my contracting business as a self-employed individual and never i mean i've never made any money on them because all the money's gone back into my business so i've never had to worry about tax but my accountants dealt with all of that you know it's the it's it, hire a good accountant, folks. This is yeah. a, a very important <laughs> thing. No matter what you do, hire a really good encounter. Yeah. Encounter. Encounter. So, so CEST is this tool that, unfortunately, it was flawed when it was released in 2017 for the public sector. They've released, updated it very recently in the last couple of weeks, and it is flawed just as much. It doesn't include things like mutuality of obligation. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't include. Um, it doesn't talk about. It, it relies heavily on substitution which substitution in our world. Right, let me describe to you a scenario that I am in right now with one of my clients. I engaged with them a um, couple of months ago. I've, I've been in contact with them all year and I finally, finally a couple of months ago, we decided we were gonna engage, sign contracts and get some work done. 
I agreed to do a few days on site um, to uh, do requirement gathering workshops. It was three days. And then I spent the rest of that, that first week writing documentation at home. Didn't partake in any stand-ups. They didn't have a clue when I was doing the, the work. They didn't care really as long as I delivered by the Friday. In fact, they didn't even care I delivered by the Friday, it turns out, because I delivered it on the Monday and I gave them a day's discount on the amount of work that I did, as a business would, because I promised I would do it on the Friday. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I've done one or two extra days for them here and there. I've not been back on site. I've done lots of meetings back and forth. Um, we've got a standard contract that I would sign with any of my longer term contracts as well. And I have work potentially coming from that client that will probably turn into three to six months worth of full-time engagement from the work that I've just done. But I've spent time winning that work, although I've charged them while I've been winning that work because my time is money and I charge for my expertise. You pay for RFPs. So that is- Especially in our industry. That's the situation I am with this client. There is nobody in, on this planet that could say I am an employee of that client. There is no obligation there whatsoever, even within the con It's an open contract. I don't have an end date on it. I've, I've signed an open contract with them and I charge them when I'm doing work for them. When I have a mm -hmm. new con when I have this new contract for this new piece of work, we will talk about it. I will specify it and I will put it into another contract, another schedule. And I will say, this is what I'm delivering. I might very well. In fact, I, I, it's very likely because I'll be doing development and they have developers on board. I will be working with their developers probably running stand-ups because another part of the work I'm doing for them is agile and scrum training. So I need to get them kind of on board with that process to improve their internal business processes. All of this is the services that I'm providing. But by virtue of me doing that, after this initial period, I may very well be looked at like an employee because I am taking part in the processes in order to support them and put them in place for this particular client. So I could be looked at like an employee, but I will never engage with them as an employee. I will never, I won't be going out to the Christmas dues. I won't be, uh, I, I don't tell them when I'm gonna have time off apart from I'll say, I'm not charging you for this day. Uh, or if I need two or three weeks off for whatever reason, I'll inform them, I'll speak to them, I'll agree with them and figure out how we can work around that. Or I may, may, this is the point I was trying to get to, provide a substitute. The problem is, is that I have done so much work up to that point and I have gathered so much knowledge about that business and so much information about the project that providing a substitute is almost a non sequitur. Yeah. There is absolutely no chance that my client would accept that even though it's written in my contract that it's down to me. The client cannot deny that substitute, but it's down to me. The risk there, there is a risk there that they will cancel the contract if I provided a substitute at that point. Or I could say to them, I'm going to have three weeks off, need to do some work for another client, or I'm going on holiday or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I'm not available for these three weeks. Is that okay? Yes, that's fine. Now, is that me asking for holiday? Or is that okay. is that me agreeing with them that I'm not available for those weeks because they know my business is a one-person business? Well, see, we deal with a gray area here. And I'm I'm going to take actually commentary from Fullscraft because I like let Jamie talk. <laughs> and yes, we're going to let Jamie talk. I'm going to take a sort of sidestep because I want to tackle a couple of things that have come out of poor Jamie in this past couple of weeks on Discord. Um I, I feel he gets a right now to have his vocal say. <laughs> so where I want to direct you, Jamie, is the following. 
you deal with recruiters a lot for yes. the work that you do. What troubles are you running into in regards to IR35 with recruiters right now? Um, I keep, I keep saying, or even that. contracts. <laughs> it, it, it keeps coming back down to education. You know, I'm, uh, I've been on the phone with a recruiter who has been, you know, cold called me. I've never heard of them before, so I don't know where they've got my details from, but that's beside the point. You know, they've, they've cold called me and said, Hey, I've got this amazing contractor, blah, 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 blah. blah. And, I, and the first question I ask is, and how does, how does the client declare it? Is it inside or outside of IR35? Oh, it's definitely outside of IR35. And then I'll run through the example that I gave earlier on. It's not a great example, but it, it's it's a metaphor. It gets the point across. I'll run through the metaphor of, okay, plumbing. Where, where where this for plumbing or for building, how would it work? And they kind of go, oh, um, yeah, no. What they want is they want someone to come in to use their machines, to be part of their team, to uh, fill in timesheets, to report directly to the project manager to be part of the stand-ups to do the agile thing to do um with these uh, woolly um woolly project definitions where you'll be working for three months alongside of everyone to deliver and then the the words sort of fizzle out and you and couldn't be to, moved to other projects as well potentially exactly. if they feel like it exactly and then i'll ask them okay right brilliant let's say i take this contract and i'm two months in and i need to take some time off and my mate Bob down the street is a contractor as well. Can I just send him in? Oh, no, you can't do that. Well, it's not outside of IR35 then, is it? And they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it's not. And a lot of this is, um, like I say, businesses, at least in the private sector, the ones that I've interacted with uh, via recruiters or, or indeed the recruiters uh, have traditionally treated, it seems like treated contractors as temporary full-time employees and mm -hmm. they're now waiting until the last possible second to figure out what it is. Um, just this week, three recruiters that I know of have had, and we're with Thursday, right? So just this week, three recruiters that I know of have had initial IR35 meetings with their legal team. And I'm, I'm thinking, we've got three months to go. If you took someone, if you gave someone a contract now that was a three month contract, you're right at the very end right up until the very last second you're saying they're outside of IR35 but they may actually be inside of it but you don't know because you haven't looked it up yet do you know what I saw yeah. uh, a job spec came into my email a couple of days ago and it was you will be outside of IR35 for the first three months moving into an inside IR35 role for the next six months or 12 months or whatever it was and I'm like well ah. okay so all they're doing is ignoring it until until April, yep. until the rules kick in. That's it. So yeah. it's, it's only dubious. that's. But the thing is, they up until April, they've got no right to say whether it's inside or outside IR thirty five. Anyway, that is marketing. Mm -hmm. It is pure marketing for the agents to or the for the, the agents to try and get contractors on board. And the problem is, is that a lot of contractors are not educated in IR thirty five enough to to be able to make the determination whether whether or not that's true or not. I, if you could, if you could, Chris, make certain someone knows something about IR35, what would it be? Oh. Just, and this goes for you too, Jamie. I mean, if, if there is one thing you think people really should know this about IR35. That's, that's such a hard question because it is such a 
deep and complicated subject. Hence why we've put it off this long and this is why we're doing a two hour show. Mm. We've got opinions here as well. Uh, there are some facts. There are some facts and there, there are lots of opinions, but there's also a lot of misinformation. Do not read, do not believe everything you read. That's probably my, my advice here. And do not believe everything an agent tells you or, or even a client, because most clients are even less educated around, at least agents have some, usually some idea, and they use that to their advantage to sell jobs to people. And I'm not saying every agent does, because there are some good ones out there that, that do the, you know, do the right thing, the honorable thing, right thing and yeah. inform people. And some, some of them are actually actively engaging with their clients and trying to make them aware of how it works. But I also see a lot of people come back from IR35 seminars and educations and go, oh, right, so the knee-jerk reaction is now that we're not going to engage contractors or everybody's going to go uh, employee or we're all going to go through an umbrella or we're all going to go through this payroll company. Or, and it's like, that isn't the way to, to solve this. In the medium term, in the short term, yes, it may very well sort it out. But in the long term, in the long term, we need to engage like businesses. And to get the the truly skilled contractors who are worth keeping on board, they're either going to jump ship and completely leave the country and and go and work in Europe before Brexit happens, or and live in Europe, or they're going to go permanent and they're off the contracting market forever. And but the permanent world is going to really be shifted up. People aren't going to stay in permanent jobs forever. Permanent will also to pretty much turn into contracting. And then that's gonna. Oh, I don't even know what's gonna happen there, Jamie. <laughs> yeah. I, I think. Um, I think the 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 biggest problem persisting is that um, you have these these contracts that are not really well defined and could fall very well inside of IR thirty five. I'm not a legal expert, and I, you know, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but you guys aren't legal experts either. You know, but we really should use our legal yeah. expert, you know, <laughs> declaration of, you know, be certain to not listen to a damn thing we're saying, do your own research, find yourself a lawyer, someone who is the find a good accountant, get it all sorted. And do be aware that, yes, even in this country, verify your accountants because anyone can declare themselves an accountant doesn't mean exactly. that they're really good at what they do. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so go ahead. Sorry, it's just that you mentioned, <laughs> we've mentioned legal so many times now. It's just we might yeah. as well have add, we just didn't use the disclaimer this time. That's fair enough. But um, yeah, the, the problem is that there are so many um, contracts out there that are out for tender that um, you could see either inside or outside of IR35. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the clued in uh, contractors, hopefully I can include myself in that, in that uh, set. I know that definitely, you know, Chris and Josie are definitely in that set of, we have an idea of what's going on. We know what's going on. Um, we have an idea. We have opinion <laughs> as to what's going on. We still have to see it come into play. Well, so who knows what'll happen? I've actually had accountants who I've talked to try and get on the show to talk about IR35 say, let us see who is in power when hmm. the changes happen because something may happen or change. They literally have to say, depending upon who is in power on the date in April when this thing is supposed to occur, something could, we're of the opinion that up until this point, because it's not set in stone yet, but mm -hmm. we know that it will be. And yet yeah. at the same time, it might be a modified version. So yeah. Well, it's anyway. going to, it's probably going to get modified <laughs> slightly, but generally I don't think that it, I don't think it's going to do it's sweeping like overhaul changes. It's you like know? that, that, that inertia thing. It's like trying to like do a U-turn in a, in a, 
oil tanker. You know, I think I probably used that analogy a few times. It's, it's got such inertia behind it already, and we've got three months to, to actually change it. The only thing that they could do is cancel it outright, and that is not going to happen. So don't mm -hmm. don't hedge your bets on that happening. It's, it's happening. Yeah. The problem is, the thing is, is IR35 exists, and it has existed and uh, since 2000. It has existed since 2000. We, as contractors of the, peop the people who had to make the determination, and now the clients have to make the determination, the industry is in an up upheaval that we don't know what to do because it's just going to turn everything on its head, basically. Mm -hmm. Too many people have been getting away with it for too long, and unfortunately, we're all being tarred with the same brush. And that's the problem. I mean, someone like point. someone like yourself, Josie, which I said, I... I believe 110% you are outside of the regs and will never be caught by them because of the way you operate, but that does not mean you wouldn't, it wouldn't become a problem at some point. If you work oh, with a big client. Any single individual who is in a contractor kind of role, we all could be snagged for something. It's always, it's that gray area perspective you were talking about. And it's, yeah, the intent, et cetera. But it's, this is why this is such a, Pardon the cursing, but it's it's why it's such a shit show. Mm -hmm. It is so challenging to understand, and yet it's such a simple topic, and yet it's not at the same time. And we've also both cut off Jamie, who was trying to say something. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I figure I'll give the chance to talk again. Maybe go ahead, Jamie. I'm sure you've got something going on there. Well, the the thing I was got I have got something else I just thought of uh, now. But the thing I was originally going to say is that, you know. The, the contractors, the businesses who are clued in, who know what to look for, who know the, which questions to ask, maybe ha they have their own contracts like, you know, you guys do and hand them out to their clients and say, this is precisely what I'm going to do. Those folks aren't going to take on those contracts that are in that gray area, but a number of contractors will. Mm -hmm. And that will just reinforce that behavior of, well, okay, so maybe we couldn't get Chris and Josie and maybe Jamie was outside of it. But what about this fellow, Dave? He doesn't seem to care. He's just going to sign on the dotted line and then go in and that's fine. We'll deal with that when it happens. It sort of reinforces that, um, that you know, th these particular um, contractors, these particular businesses are being a bit awkward about which contracts they sign when in actual fact, you know, we're sitting here and we're going, no, we have to look, you know, into the future. We are like risk averse. Said, exactly. Like you said. Just, just like a business should be. Exactly. You know. You know think, well, not necessarily. Well, some companies are really, you know, early <laughs> adopters of risk. But, you know, yeah. point being, we have to look out for the company and the bottom line as a whole, mm -hmm. not just the individual employee or yeah. employees. I mean, it was earlier on that Chris actually said the, the, the words along the lines of, you know, I'm looking past this contract right now into what I'm going to do in six months time, what I'm going to do in a year's time, because although this contract initially may only be for three months, six months, I need to know that within a year I am still um, contractable, if that makes sense. I can still talk to other clients and still work with them. Maybe, you know, what if what if I take a contract now and I'm found to be within IR35? That's negatively going to impact my company. And so my ability to get contracts in the future will be drastically harmed by that. And that's what, 
you know, folks like us, we are risk averse. We're looking into that. But some of the other contractors aren't. And they will just take that contract because it's there. Because maybe they are, like you said, Chris, maybe they are just in it for the money. Maybe they're not trying to run a business like uh, you, like yourselves and me, you know. And that's that's going to reinforce that. You're going to have more. Do you know what's um, really interesting? A lot of the time, this is slightly unrelated, but related in a way. Um, I If I sign a three-month contract, I find it odd that contracts are three months, six months, 12 months, nine months, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I find it a bit weird because it nothing's, nothing's that neat. And it's the industry standard is generally three to six months. If I sign a contract for three months, then I kind of expect to have a deliverable by the end of those three months. Otherwise, I expect to, oh, yeah. to sign an open contract and only charge when I'm, like I've just described with, with a couple of my clients I work with, work that way with. I have another client that only signs contracts on a month-by-month -month basis, and every month we agree deliverables that will be, get, and it's different every month because it changes within the month of me, with mm -hmm. the month of me providing the services. I mean, HMRC may argue that that particular model of the month by month and changing your deliverables is just just agreeing what you're going to do for the next month. You know, when you, you still are an employee, but I don't work under control either. I've got a bit waylaid there. I forgot what my point was. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I also have a slight sidetrack thing based on what Jamie was saying. Um, I actually, and this actually sort of feeds off of what you were saying earlier, Chris, you know, do your research, people, and don't believe absolutely everything that you read or hear about IR35. I actually saw a company that was advertising its services as helping you become IR35 ready. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they did in their advertisement was stress how employable, 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 yes, employable you will be as a contractor and how attractive you will be because of your IR35 status, especially if you are in it. I was just sitting Clients there going, couldn't give what a crap. the hell? Apart from being forced by the government to give a crap now, they couldn't it, care less what my status, hack status is. That's just the thing. Mm -hmm. it, it made me laugh because it's it's like trying to to polish a turd. It really is. Just, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I was just in there going, are you really telling me that my services will be so much more attractive to a client because of my IR35? It's like, oh, let's talk about the sexy subject now. It's IR35. Ooh. And also, right, just do this is another piece of advice for, for oh, any any man. contractors out there. Do not get IR35 insurance because it's not worth the paper it's written on. The problem is, is that if you are found to be inside IR35, you are seen by most of the by most of the, the writing in the insurance documents uh, that you have lied on your insurance application, so you don't get covered it's ridiculous it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous i remembered my point by the way if i work on a three-month contract whatever whatever it is i quite often say to my clients at least a month before the end of the contract saying are you expecting to have more work for me uh, after the three months i'm coming up to the end of what we've talked about um can you tell me what's going on because otherwise i am going to get some more full-time work Bearing in mind that all my clients know that I have lots of little pieces of work going on during the contract, but I always have one big, usually have one big, you know, full-time contract as well. Mm -hmm. And those, that is a flexible arrangement usually. And a lot of clients, if they're big, 
big companies and there's lots of other contractors there that have these permi tractors and have like lots of bums on seat people they look at me funny they 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 think that i'm what that isn't how everyone else works everyone is just fine to wait till the last minute to to get a renewal and the 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 Again, uh, I'm risk averse and I'm looking for my next piece of work well before the end of the three months. If you want me for six months, hire me for six months, you know, hire is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? I want that, that the period of time that you take me on is the, is the least risk averse I can be. I, I am, I am not guaranteed, but there's, there's a small amount of risk that I, I will, hang on, that's the wrong word wording. I need those three months is not guaranteed, but is almost guaranteed income for me for those three months because I've signed a contract and I'm on a day rate. After those three months, I've got no visibility whatsoever as a business and I need to keep earning. So I'm going to look for more work. I'm sorry if you don't see it that way, but that's how I see it. And that's how I need to work it. If you, if someone else comes along before you, I am signing that client up. It's not that I've jumped ship. It's that you have officially not- Do you know what it is? Booked me it, in. It, it, it goes back to the perspective thing. What they're seeing is they're seeing Chris, right? Mm -hmm. They're not seeing your company. For me, you know, it's... But then you say that, I, they look at you like you're an alien, like you're an but, absolute madman because... Well, that, see, that, that's <laughs> that's because I think it goes back to what Jane was saying about the educational side of things. So many people and so many companies think that when they hire somebody, um, especially if they're dealing with that one particular individual, almost from the inboard process, the sales inboard tasks and outboarding process, you know, you're dealing with a quote unquote contractor that it's, it's a thing. They're not dealing with a company. They're dealing with an individual. Whereas, you know, in a lot of the cases, some of the things that Chris and I do, I don't know if you do this as well, Jamie, is it's, our company is contacting you on behalf of our contractor to verify that you would like to renew services with our company. Mm. And that is so vastly different than me turning around and going, so I'm just curious, do you have work for me next week? Because at that point in time, it's, it's, it's a lot more employee oriented. Whereas if, you know, my company is the one contacting them going, you know, we're, we've given you the services of an employee and now we're curious if you want to renew your time with us it could be another employee you get because you know substitution is a thing you know but do you wish to renew your services with my company or the company is really the better way to say it and if they say no no worries we're out of here and if they say yes okay now let's make certain we have the contract for the next set of deliverables and we figure out what's so going on that's the mutuality so, of obligation side of things exactly. yeah it's, it's the it's the move so the, the thing is, is there's actually two, not again by law, but there's two definitions of Moo. There's HMRC's definition of, uh, of Moo, which is they think, and they argue this in court all the time, that um, by virtue of having a contract, you have a mutuality of obligation with the client. Now, the argument is, is that you shouldn't have mutuality of obligation. That's HMRC's argument. So they argue that we don't need to put this into CEST, for example, because it's it's a moot point however there are two different types of mutuality of obligation there is contractual mutuality mutuality of obligation um and there is the uh i think it's legal or ir moo or something there, there was some solicitors on linkedin talking about it the other week um and the the difference is is yes by virtue of having a contract we have a mutuality to complete the contract and fulfill the services that we that right. we agree so we have that mutuality and if we if we don't deliver 
those services, we can be sued. I mean, that doesn't yeah. happen in the contracting world very often. It has once or twice, I think, but it doesn't really happen because, again, they just see you as, oh, you're just a, you know, a temporary employee, and if you're not available or you haven't delivered what we've expected you to deliver, then we'll just roll it into the next contract. And that's the kind of, that's what we're talking about here. Specifically, the, the mutuality of obligation we're talking about is the ability for us to say no and for the client to say no to giving us to giving us work outside of that contract. So if yeah. we've agreed for three months to work for them, we need to be able to say at the end of those three months, as Josie just phrased it almost perfectly, as a company, can you know, do you still need our services? If you know, if if the answer is yes, then let's agree what what we're going to deliver for the next period. Otherwise, you're an employee because you're not actually you're providing a service you're not providing services at that point you are personally providing work you know work as an employee it's it's not that to me is quite a clear distinction between how a business operates and how a disguised employee operates as a business you can't just say oh i've got expenses and I run all my own taxes and you know i i'm responsible for i'm employed by my own company league that's all just a way to pay less tax it's not actually running a business that's the distinct difference see that that that's the thing and maybe it's it's because of the way i've i've kind of always looked at it but you know when i started my company it was not with the intent to avoid taxes it was with the intent to find a way to grow and have a serviceable income and be able to work with all the different clients and do the thing that I really like to do. I literally see every opportunity as how does this help me grow? Am I getting closer to the point where I'm going to be bringing on employees to work with me? Am I at a point now where I'm going to be um, reaching out for certain uh, larger targets for you know future clients? Or am I actually gonna be looking at hiring on a sales team to sell my services, which some people could see as recruiters. I mean, recruiters are outsourcing sales for your yeah, team. They're just, they're just a, it's, yeah, it's, connect with it's, your clients. It's just unfortunate that, it, again, it all comes back to the perspective and it comes back to the understanding. You know, I, I think what gets really, really frustrating here is the fact that I know a lot of contractors who feel directly attacked by this. Um, and I know a lot of people who run businesses who feel attacked by this because they're a single employee business. Doesn't mean that they're trying to be a, a disguised employee. It's just, I don't know, there's, there's almost this desire to say, wake up, government, to get it right. <laughs> but as we there's know... An element, there's an element of blame <laughs> on both sides, though. That's the thing. Is, well, is... there is. We have people who take advantage. You give you, The moment you get two people involved in something, there is always the potential for someone to be taken advantage of. Period. End of story. And unfortunately, we do live in the day and age where there are people who will, for lack of a better term, cheat, lie, and steal, and... Those people are usually why we have laws a certain way. Usually, I say that because we know how lobbying can work and it can be completely drastic for drafted purposes, but usually it's with the intent to protect, you know, people. Unfortunately, some of those protections go almost towards the form of attack on 
an, an individually a sector or something like that. I think so, there is also there's also a bit of um, from the guilty contractors who don't want to admit they're guilty or maybe maybe genuinely believe that they're not guilty because of because they don't fully understand what a business is and how a business should really operate, not just in the eyes of the law but morally as well. I mean, mm. that that's the problem is they feel attacked because. I saw somebody comment on LinkedIn saying, oh, just don't pay HMRC anything because they're steal money from us anyway. It's like, well, no, well, how does what? society exist if we don't pay taxes towards it, you know? And I can understand that kind of stunted view, but at the same time, we we have to pay tax. Everybody has to pay taxes, you know? There's only certain things guaranteed it's in about, life, babe, and that's death and taxes. It's about fairness and morals in this instance. And unfortunately, they have to put rules in place for those who do not understand fairness and do not have necessarily the right morals in this situation. I don't feel personally attacked by this. I feel as if it is a necessary step. Um, so these new rules that are coming on in April, uh, mm -hmm. are the changing that we again we reiterate, changing the determination status uh, the steps determination statement from me as the contractor to my clients so my clients now make my determination i feel this is a necessary step and i don't really have a problem with it the problem i have is the sheer amount of misinformation that's out there that is misinforming clients and misinforming agencies and basically creating these knee-jerk reactions knee-jerk reactions instead of them going let's look at this objectively how can we how can we change the way that we work with contractors to make sure that we engage with them in a legit in a legitimate business to business relationship rather than expecting some benefits of the business to business world such as being able to get rid of the supplier immediately is whenever we want not having to pay any taxes on on that uh, outcome having the flexibility that we have with with agencies but then we also want to completely control them and, and comp we make sure that they're under our jurisdiction and uh, they're available whenever we want them to be available you know that kind of thing and that's the problem and then there's lots of contractors who are just happy to do that because it's easy because I, they're used to it from their permanent jobs i think that's that's one of the reasons obviously why ir35 became a thing in the early 2000s is because the, there are businesses that will treat their contractors like they are permanent employees. So I think you used the word, was it uh, permitractor? Per permitractor. You know, yeah, boom on seat. You technically are an employee for all intents and purposes because we treat you like one, but we just pay you via a shell company or something. You know, and it, it, because of that, that's why we have these rules. And it's not, it's not, an, I don't see it as an attack either. I don't see it as someone trying to shut down my business. It's someone is trying to, or a, a government body is trying to help put in place something that such that other people who are doing the same stuff that I'm doing are doing it correctly and paying the right amount of taxes. You know, I, I do actually legitimately know a number of uh, contractors who, uh, you said earlier on, Chris, that you know usually you're you have a paye amount, and then if you want to, you can take dividends on top of that to sort of bolster your mm -hmm. income. You you still do pay tax on it, but I know a few contractors who pay themselves the minimum required. They're effectively working a minimum wage, and then pay themselves every other penny out of the company as dividends, and that's kind of 
whether that's moral or legal or not, I don't know because I'm not an expert. But what I'm saying is it's to sort of push those people towards a, a slightly better, more tax-paying uh, okay. direction. You know? So I want to be I want to be absolutely oh, clear wow. on uh, on how I operate. I operate exactly like you just said. So I pay myself, and I'm I don't care that people know this. I pay myself. The minimum amount of money. This is league. This is tax advice. My accountant gives me. Any accountant would give any contractor or any single person business or even any director of a business to mm. an extent. If you've got lots of employees, it's probably better that you pay yourself a, a wage and you know take dividends. If you've got lots of di uh, directors, for example, you can't do you can't do it this way because you don't have the. Uh, you don't have the flexibility of paying dividends to yourself without the other directors also taking dividends or shareholders rather. Um, yeah. I pay, I'm a single person company. My wife isn't, you know, she isn't a director. A lot of people do that. A lot of people have their spouse in order to save more tax. I genuinely do not believe that my wife works for me as my PA. She does all of my administration, but she does not. Uh, she doesn't take any dividends. She's not a director. She's not a shareholder. She she is an employee of mine, and I tell her what to do and when to do it and how to do it. Right? <laughs> well, everything else in our life, she tells me how to do it and when to do it. And how to do it. But well, you she's know not what even I mean? the guinea pigs. So right on for her. But the, but I pay myself uh, the minimum amount of of wages, PAY, that I need to pay myself. Now there is a loophole in the law in within the the, the UK tax system that allows me to pay no. I think it's no employer's national insurance or employees or maybe even both, but I still officially contribute towards the national insurance. So I get all of my national insurance credits or whatever it is. Now that is, there's a moral, there's a moral issue there potentially, but that is what my accountant says is the best, most tax efficient way of running my company. That isn't why I do it. I do it because it's the best way to do it. Simple as that. It's, uh, that and I, it's, I've been given it's that the advice. Same thing I've heard from multiple, multiple types of accountants. The, it's that all. There are other people. There are yeah. other contractors that pay themselves a forty, fifty thousand pound a year yes. wage, and you know. But the thing is, my my income is so inflexible that some years I don't earn enough to pay myself that wage, and I would have to alter that wage and alter my tax code, and it would be. It's oh. it to me that doesn't make sense as a single person business i pay myself what i can actually afford as a minimum wage and then i pay dividends whenever i need them or whenever i at the end of the year i feel like i want to i want to pay them i get taxed the same amount pretty much now as an employee would anyway but i need the flexibility because some years i don't work for nine months yes but that, that that's is beside the point it's completely nobody else's business i'm telling you because for full disclosure to give you an idea of what most contractors do some people do that to avoid tax i do it because it's a legitimate way to run a business and i am a single person company that has risks as a business you know i've not yeah. i've not been working full time for three months i've had three months worth of uh, small pieces of work coming in that's how a business runs it's not it's not wrong to do that but and and that and and, and to be fair that's not even hmrc's problem hmrc as i said uh changing the rules so that we will pay 40 percent less tax overall but more national insurance contributions whether they see that as fair or they see it as controlling uh, i said somebody else i i read something on linkedin said that they felt like it was them asserting control over the flexible workforce. <laughs> asserting dominance yeah, over us, poor little tiny people. But the, the thing is, is I don't feel bad about doing any of that because of how I run my this, business. Well, mm -hmm. see, this is the thing, you know, 
what it comes down to is knowledge, knowledge as the case may be. And there is a hell of a lot of misinformation. What this also means is it's also for those of you who have onboarding processes when you get clients um, to probably include IR35 education in some way, shape, or form. If they... Either a document that explains what IR35 is and why you have certain phraseology in your contract. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's going to be different for each person, but having a way to make certain that you and your client are on the exact same pages to the definition of what the hell IR35 is could be helpful. It could be, but if they're small clients, they don't still don't need to know or care. If they earn less than a certain amount of per year, which but is see, defined. Well, yes, I mean, that is a given and that is sort of part of it. You know I mean, you're not going to turn around to, um, like, for example, uh, I know someone who does uh, little miniature animals, sells them on Etsy. And, you know, they just occasionally ask for a little help here and there. Like, I am not going to be sitting there trying to explain IR35. No, no, no. Business to customers completely <laughs> irrelevant here. I'm talking about but, small business but, to no, business clients. It. They sell their little stuff in a business. So they have, like, there are things there. I mean, even the smallest, tiniest little company, you know? So it, what, it, what, what I'm saying is there's a difference there between someone who sells something on Etsy to a customer Business to customer is a very different model and is not affected by IR35 whatsoever in the slightest. Well, yeah. These are yeah. business to business contract of services that are being provided by a single person company, which again, does not have a definition, definition in law, but what HMRC refer to as a personal services company, which is what all three of us are here and many people that are listening to the podcast mm. as well. There's a, a distinct difference there and it's about there's no employment relationship implied by a business to customer relationship. There's no, I can't even, I couldn't even convolute one out of my head, someone selling something on eBay and expecting them to be a customer. No. <laughs> so. no, 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 no. I mean, like in my case, you know, helping out with marketing and things like that for their company that is selling things like little things like that. You know, there is still a need for them to kind of understand, but at the same time, there are thresholds yeah. and these are legally defined thresholds and be aware of what these thresholds are and other things that go with it. <sighs> oh my Lord. <laughs> Talk about IR35. Let me ask you this, Jamie, is there anything about IR35 that we have not mentioned that you really want to have known? Um... I don't, I don't think it's the IR35. I think it's related to the CEST, the Czech Employment uh, Yes. And the one thing I want to say about it is, and it may be IR35, it may be CEST, and it might just be because of the work that those three do. It's There's something in there about, um, do you provide your own um, highly specialized equipment? This does not cover mobile phones, tablets, laptops, or computers. And I'm like, well, what is this highly specialized piece of equipment? So they're talking about the construction industry printers. there mostly. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah that's essentially yes. what it is. It's a very, not very veiled, um, not very hidden question about, do you work in the construction industry and do you provide your own, I don't know, jackhammer or something or, or <laughs> things like Steady that? Steadicam. Actually, yeah. going into like into like the um, audiovisual side of things, Steadicam operators, and some of them have their own Steadicams. So that is incredible equipment. But mm -hmm. for those of us, I, I wonder if they mean things like, you know, personally written scripts. 
That no. counts as a tool in our industry, no. No, right? It's not. No, it's something physical. It's a it's a tangible uh, I, I, asset that I you know. need to I'm do. I'm just saying to... that they've completely misunderstood the IT industry. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, Chris, you have a, a particular set of the, classes think... that you use for mail. I think what Jamie was referring no. to was the, the fact that CEST specifically says, do you have specialized tools in brackets, yeah. not including mobile phones, laptops, computers. So yeah. basically we are excluded just by the, the, we cannot answer yes to that question or no, or whatever the actual right term is to make you a bit more outside of IR35, because we do not, prov we, we, we provide our own skills and our own services as a service to a business and we might use our own tools and that's usually written into our contracts and that's a that's a, a legitimate way to do business again but it's not it's not classed by hmrc as a as a plus point because we i don't know i don't know i really don't know why why a computer and my six screens and my you know my specialized <laughs> audio hardware and my own meeting rooms and things like that that i, I actually have for purposes for my business isn't but counted. that's just it. I mean, for example, if we decided to use, you know, AWS SES to handle our mail relays, that's considered a specialized tool, right? A, a server. Servers, are they classified under computers? It's, by it, the definition? It specifically says computers and laptops, so I don't know. Right, server, servers are probably... Some people see servers as computers and Servers are probably... What, what, so... what it's actually looking for, that question, is do you have a financial risk and do you have to provide, not necessarily drills, if you're in the construction industry or anything, do you have to buy something, a material or a, a, a piece of equipment that is needed specifically to do that job for just that job? So say, for example, you're a builder and you need to pour some you need to mix some concrete. Do you need to have a concrete mixer for that particular task, you know? It isn't that different from a PC, but we're not allowed to use PCs. But he would so, be allowed to use a concrete mixer in that example. But so see, that, that, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. Because no, no, that just confused me ever so slightly with what you just said, Chris. You know, you said um, having a piece of specialized tool for that specific job. Most of the stuff, the, uh, like the way my brain works is if I were in the contract or construction thing and I happen to have a cement mixer, uh, it would be used in why I was hired in the first place, potentially. We'll just go with that. It's my specialized tool. It's used for all of my things, not just one job. Although in another one, I might not need the contract or concrete mixer, but uh, because I'm actually using a spatula to, you know, do can, something. Like, can the client provide a concrete mixer for you, that kind of thing, you know, or does the client provide the concrete mixer for you? But they might do, oh, and that might still mean that you're outside the legislation. Yeah, you might, you might have to, but see, that's just the thing. That goes back to what you were saying before, Chris, about being in the specialized locations, though. You know, you have to use the equipment provided if you're working for the MOD, because there are certain rules and regulations, not always. There are certain, there's all kinds of exceptions unfortunately and i think that is where we run into our big problems so let's i've actually just run through cest very quickly and we've got up to the few questions that are relevant here so will you have to buy equipment before your client pays you this can include heavy machinery or high cost specialist equipment used for this work so the answer to that question answer for us is no because we already have our computers and laptops however if we didn't have our computers and laptops and we needed to do the work would we be able to do the work without them? HMRC would argue that no, because you can get you can use the com the client's computer. But all three of us probably 
I mean, I would definitely these days argue that absolutely, yes, I would need my own computer because I will not work on their hardware. And I, I, I cannot. I absolutely unequivocally cannot because it is none of one client's under or, uh, business what I'm doing for another client at all. So, and I need my PC or my PCs or a server platform or whatever in order to service all of my clients. I'll finish the definition. I'll finish the, uh, the, the, the caveat here. This does not include laptops, tablets, and phones. Vehicle costs are covered in the next question. So... Is my desktop a laptop? Probably so, not. Something I would ask there is, let's say you are working for a, a, you're working alongside a client and they need very specific pieces of maybe software or hardware, or maybe you're working on an embedded device that they cannot provide you one from their stockroom and you have to buy one from the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. Then you could answer if, yes. Yes. What about if it's, you are you have you are mandated for some reason for security reasons or whatever we covered the MOD earlier on. Let's say that they say you have to use, for instance, Visual Studio version X at a cost to yourself. Does that because they would, can't? If it's a cost to yourself, then absolutely you can answer yes exactly, to that question. Yeah. If if it's not a cost to yourself and they provide it, then you can't answer yes to that. But interestingly, a point you've this has actually happened to me in the past, and I've had to decline it to the client because I uh, th there was no return on investment for me. Um, but I could easily have said yes and answered yes to this. Well, actually, I couldn't answer yes to this question because I'll tell you in a second. Um, so I was asked to write a uh, an API for a client. The next contract renewal, I was then asked to work on a mobile um, application for the client, which was iOS specific. So with iOS, you need to use uh, X, no, you don't need to use Xcode to program, but you can use Xcode to program, but you need an Apple, an Apple Mac to be able to compile it. Um, mm. Or you used to, at least back then. I'm not you, sure if it's still, still the case. Now, yeah. Okay. So, and, and in this instance, I needed to deploy it to a very specific tablet that they had that they needed to, they were going to deploy to their customers because they had control over it um and i was based here in the in in my hometown and they were based 350 miles away and they didn't want to send me a tablet and i didn't want to buy a tablet so i just said no i'm not doing that work simple as that so that indicates i have moo so is that a counter argument? This is the grey area. It's madness. It's absolute no. madness. Moo yeah. is still probably like the best thing ever. Yep. Yes. So will yeah. you have to just quickly ask the next question? Will you have to fund any vehicle costs before your client pays you? This could include purchasing, leasing, hiring, fuel, and any running other running costs for this work. This does not include commuting or personal vehicle costs. Now, my car is my personal vehicle. I did not buy it through my company because my accountant said, do not buy it through your company. It's not tax efficient to do that. When I bought the car, I actually specifically asked my accountant if I should, if it was worth doing. And he said, I can't remember why, but he said, don't do it. It's not worth it. Um, if I had done that, I could say yes to that question because I do not commute to my clients. I go to see them for meetings. If that's what the definition of if that's not what the definition of commute is but what is the definition of a commute is it something you do regularly is it work a workplace that you commute to or is it just a travel between you and a client's office 
It's interesting because there are certain I've seen um, contracts where uh, you get paid for the mileage that you do um, to and from. Yep. Period. It makes no difference, you know. I've it's had, just I've had clients reimburse my my travel costs. I've had clients reimburse plane tickets and uh, accommodation oh, I, for hotels. I, but I do that via uh, I I include that on my invoices. Yeah, a line agree. item invoice with that particular thing. And that is... And that's a legitimate form of business. Loads of businesses do that. Yes, I, uh, yes, they do. And, oh, man, what's the next question? <laughs> we should uh, we should do an episode going through Cest and the absolute crazy mind that it is. It's, yes, you know what? That's a really good idea. And I also just happened to notice the time. Yes. So here's, <laughs> here's what we're going to do. We've had an incredibly long episode, and this episode will be available tomorrow. It's probably going to be a little late because it takes a little longer to do the processing. Be aware of that. Um, but before we go, we always try to end the show with a positive note. This is our BYOM, Bring Your Own Manual. It's our chance to kind of educate, inform, share knowledge, and show that we're all not just trying to hoard knowledge and um, become indisposable. Please go back and watch that episode. <laughs> so, for our BYOM, who wants to go first? Shall I get mine out of the way? Because I struggled. You struggled. You struggled, struggled so hard. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I've not been I've learning that much. I've, I've got a few, but none of them are that interesting. This one's not that interesting, but I watched a, a video um, this week on uh, Ancestry, and it was... Um, it was Stephen Fry talking about ancestry, and he came up with a few interesting facts. And one thing I learned is that us in the UK, everybody in the UK, is at, if you have a UK descendant, that is. So my mother is from the UK, my father's from Hungary, so Europe. So there's two facts here. Um, the first fact is that we are all descended from, probably all descended from William II, who is. Yes. The Conqueror, right? No, it's William the First was William the Conqueror. Um, William the Second was his successor, I believe, his son. Um, but yeah, we're all sort of related. <laughs> I'm not sure if you are, Josie, because you're from America. Unless you've got any UK descendant, um, actually, my, descendants. My, uh, I'm going to sound so American here. Part of my ancestry is Irish. The other part of it is Norse. Okay. So, technically speaking, due to um, all the Viking that happened. Um, because it is a verb for anyone who is curious to all the Viking that happened. There is a potential possibility. So I I am <laughs> descended from William II and also probably because my dad's Hungarian descended from, and I think all of us ultimately are descended from uh, Genghis, not Genghis Khan, Attila the Hun mm. apparently. And probably Genghis Khan as well, he had that many conquests. Yeah, and... it, it, yeah it's, oh, it's insane that we could tailor ourselves but, back what, that far. What was particularly interesting about that is that it's not actually that far back. It's only a few hundred years. That that I mean, it's a few hundred, six, seven hundred, or something like that. But it's still not that far back. It's nope. It's quite crazy. And we, so, the the lesson from this is that we should all love each other as brothers and sisters, and we shouldn't have any of this diversity, and we shouldn't have any of this. Not hang on, that came out wrong. We shouldn't have diversity. <laughs> we shouldn't have any of this division. That was the word I was looking for. <laughs> wrong D word there. Come we're on. all related, and we're all we all should really love each other. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to throw a fact out there. Um, so there is this fantastic thing, and 
I'm making up the term, but I like it. Do you know about productivity paradoxes? You did mention it, but I don't know anything more than you mentioning it. Okay. An example of a productivity paradox is ZOMG, office dog has shown up, no productivity done for like 10 minutes, but office dog leaves and everyone's excited and empowered and gets more work done because they've had a boost of positive energy. All right. This is my definition of it. I only mention it because my husband came home and he's like, look at this picture. And someone brought an office dog in for like 10 minutes. And of course, you know, everyone's going to party when you have a little puppy, not really little things, huge, but a puppy to play with. But afterwards you get this sort of, woohoo, there was a puppy here. Yay. Now let's go back to work. Yay. There's, there's an energy change. So I'm calling it the productivity paradox. The second thing I'm going to mention is um, when you do monitoring, so I do a lot of monitoring because I'm responsible for a lot of websites and a lot of servers. Um, I kind of forgot one part of the monitoring process and it dinged me today, actually. Uh, so uh, one of the database processes failed over on my server and I didn't get a notification about the fact that it failed. I didn't even get a notification that the apps that were running on that server weren't, you know, displaying the proper content on the website because the websites were properly coded to actually display a web page that says there's an error. Therefore, the 200 error response codes given by HTTP were going to be happening. And 200 means don't notify me. Don't send me a text mm -hmm. message. So instead, when you do that kind of monitoring, make certain you're not just monitoring the HTTP response and not, not just monitoring the actual um, apps you've got running or the daemons you've got running for the different servers, but also monitor the text that you expect to see. And if you happen to know what the error result is going to be, have that be part of your notification and um, monitoring platform. You could so I'm an idiot. You really can, you can only rely to. on your HTTP codes if you have a truly restful HTTP mm. server. Yes, exactly. Uh, whatever whatever and, service has been served from it. Yeah, let, let's let's just say that this is my lesson to all of you people who are looking to get into any kind of server hosting or monitoring. Don't just monitor the codes monitor the content on the pages as well. And if you know what the known response should be, test for it. Interestingly, that exact problem is happening on the DNI website at the moment. We get a 200 response code from the Fireside FM JSON feed and yep. a zero byte response every now and again, but we still get a 200 code. So I can't just easily check that it's the code's changed, which is the default way that you'd work with a RESTful service, but you can't in that instance. In our case, we are we're going to have to look at adding cache and things like that to the future. Go, but those are my two. Go to our GitHub and find that little piece of code that does the check to see if there's a response code that's not two hundred, and if the content is greater than four bytes or something. I had to calculate it. It's horrible. It's a horrible little bit of hacky code, but occasionally we have to do these things as programmers. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're we're so horrible. But yes, Jamie, what are your BYOM or M's? So I guess before I get onto that, I just want to say that uh, to echo something Chris said, and that's these horrible little hacks are essentially how the world works. You know, everything that you rely on from from a mobile phone app all the way down to the transport layer that it uses, there are tiny little hundreds of tiny little hacks that we just kind of accept and they're there. So I think it's perfectly fine to have a tiny little hack in a website just to make it 
you know, in the off chance that the service doesn't respond correctly and we just carry on going. It makes perfect sense because why not? Everything else has them, right? As long as it's <laughs> as long as it's wrapped in a CQRS design pattern and you know it's got loads of test driven development around it and unit tested 100% code coverage and definitely uh, yeah. PRs going on <laughs> and, uh, and all the other all the other overheads we need. Voltscra from chat has said nothing lasts longer than a temporary solution. It's a very I mean, how many poignant. times have we actually gone in and I, I, I actually did this, I think it was like three or four months ago. I was going through and I was reviewing a plugin that I had written and it said, you know, you put this code in here for a reason. Be sure to put in what that reason is. <laughs> and that's what it said. And I just looked at it and I went, Oh, there's a reason I'm not using this plugin anymore. Right, I gotcha. <laughs> so yeah, we're a silly bunch of people. Mm. Yeah. But you know, that's because time constraints, you know? Um, but my BYOM, I guess, is uh, completely unrelated to anything we've been talking about. Good. About a year ago, I decided, what would it be like to rent a video game for an old piece of hardware using modern hardware? I and saw it, you doing this. And I went down this little this little journey of, uh, hmm, which piece of hardware should I use? Should I go for an, uh, an Amiga uh, C64 or something like that? And I spent ages just belly aching over uh, which hardware and which language and which framework and which thing and which thing. And it was only uh, three weeks ago, I, I for one of the podcasts I do, I talked to a guy called Stu Cambridge. And if that name doesn't ring any bells, maybe one of the games he worked on, Cannon Fodder, does. It's yeah. um, a huge name in the the sort of um, late 80s, early 90s UK video game industry. Um, and he was talking to me about, well, you know, the Mega Drive has this wonderful color palette. And I just went, that's it, Mega Drive. So I've essentially started down the journey of preparing to write a video game for the Mega Drive. Um, and so I think it was last week as we record this, no, the week before, I think, Saturday afternoon, I got home at four o'clock in the afternoon from having done all my things I needed to do. And I just started sort of Googling, how do I create a Mega Drive game in 2019? And it turns out it's really simple. You just mm. need an IDE, you need to use the C programming language, and you need to get something called the SGDC, which is the Sega Genesis Development Kit, which is a free suite of tools that are that are just out there. They're on uh, GitHub. You do need to install Java because there's a Java step involved. Ruined it. You've ruined it for us. Hey, hey, we, we as we've made mention, Java's done some good things recently. I mean, mm -hmm. they did say you haven't used me on your system in six months. We recommend you want to install me, and that mm -hmm. was a good thing. I mean, yep. you're doing something okay. But so you are now building. You know what you're going to build. Uh, not yet, because <laughs> I'm still sort of exploring what the tools can do. But I think I'm going to go with um, a platforming game. So it's, it's essentially just going to tie in with one of my um, one of my podcasts. So I'm going to be like, hey, you could play the Waffling Taylor's video game. And because why not, right? And it's just going to be mm. run from here to there, jumping on things and getting through, you know? I mean, that works really well for Mario and Sonic and, um, you know, a bunch of other things. If you characters. even have a fraction so, of their success, then you're, you're on the right track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to release it for free if, anyway. So, yeah. well, if it, if you can get it playable, especially on um, Mega Drive. no, not the Mega Drive things. Uh, the simulator thingies. 
The emulators? Emulators. <laughs> My brain. Well, I mean, that's how I'm debugging it. I'm using an emulator. So when you build the, the when you build the game with the tools, it produces mm -hmm. a bin file, which is essentially what the ROMs that you would download for the games you definitely legally own are. And um and you know, if you take a dump from a cartridge that you own, it will come across in a bin as a bin file. It's just a binary format. And um yeah, so I could drop this file onto an SD card, plug it into my EverDrive, which is a Mega Drive cartridge that I could just dump games onto and play it on real hardware. Or I could just play it inside the emulator. Or I can pay an extortionate amount of money and have it burnt onto an actual cartridge that <laughs> I could put into the uh, the Mega Drive. Because and, that, and there are people that still do that. There's a business out yeah. there that still does that. That's brilliant. Yeah, definitely. There, there were two really huge games that came out in the last two years for the specifically for the Mega Drive. Tanglewood and Xenocrisis. And Xenocrisis only came out like two or three months ago. They were designed specifically you know, for that hardware, but then ported to PC and Xbox One and PlayStation. So um there's actually uh, our previous host, um Patrick, he he was mm. uh, developing a Dreamcast game called Elysian Shadows. I think he still is developing it in his, his spare time with a uh, with his business partner. And uh, yeah, that's uh, he's intending to release that on the Dreamcast. I don't know if it'll go any further than that, but it was uh, mm. It's fast. There is a there is a it, subculture, isn't there? There is something that I will recommend for you, Jamie, if you don't already do it, and that is to troll the heck out of the Internet Archives online games for the Mega Drive. See if you mm -hmm. can't get some kind of inspiration or something like that and see what's doable, what's not doable, what they've done, what they haven't done. Um, because one of the beautiful things about the Internet Archive, for those who are unaware, is that they are storing backlogs of games. So for example, for those of us who grew up with Oregon Trail, you can actually play Oregon Trail in their emulator. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other ones as well. But yeah, I just, I recommend Archive.org is that. I've, uh... I have it, I have it linked in my in my hot bar, and I occasionally go on. and I was playing Prince of Persia the other day, the original uh, Amiga version. Oh, that horrible, horrible, horrible! Oh, it's not horrible. horrible it's brilliant. Horrible. That was really one of the good. first cool games I ever played. That it was the incredibly mm. interesting thing you brought up there is that um, the the source code for the original um, uh, Prince of Persia for the Apple IIe was found four years ago in a bucket in someone's garage right. and this person went i don't know what this is but i'll send it to my computer friend who then eventually found out a way of forwarding it back to the original developer who then spent a huge amount of money reading the data off of the floppy disks and has put it on github nice very good and um this is why i love our world in the world of it and computers and development yeah. and programming and we're I now Oh, no, go ahead, Jamie. No, no, go I was on. just going to say, I, I even found a few days ago, there's a GitHub user called Historic Source, I believe. And they are essentially just collecting source code from wherever they can find it uh, for all of these older games. And it goes all the way up to, I think there's SpongeBob for the PlayStation. <laughs> and it is like it that one repo for SpongeBob <laughs> is a perfect example of DevOps because I cloned it the other day and it said, run this batch file to 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 compile the entire game. I didn't need any software tools installed. I just ran the batch file. 20 minutes later, I had an ISO ready to burn to a disk. It's wonderful. That is DevOps. Yep. But anyway, that's a little ranty thing. 
<laughs> right. Okay. So we're now at the so, end of our show. Massive thank you to all of you guys who have been with us for the entire duration and for all of you who have said hello to us in Twitch chat and participated. We have made note of the fact that some of you have some, some, said some things that we may have missed and we do apologize. But a massive thank you to Voltrack and to Invina and to Tepe and also to Mike who also stopped by and to Aussie as well and everyone else who was quietly trolling. I can actually see the fact that they're just quietly watching. Just just kind of pointed out there. But thank you so much for joining in. And for all of you who are listening to us in the future, hopefully uh, we haven't hurt and killed your brain cells when it comes to IR35. And again, if you have any commentary on this at all, please reach out to us at DNI Stream on Twitter and a whole bunch of other places. Just let us know. This is a topic that is not going to go away. We want to get it right. And if that means you come on and challenge our thoughts or you add your thoughts, please let us know. I genuinely want to be told that I'm wrong. With, with a lot of my opinions and a lot of the things that I've said about IR35, I've got I've got very strong opinions on it and I'm not one of these contractors who's afraid to say a lot. I've actually had messages from people saying, I'm keeping my head down, but I think you've done this or I disagree with this, you know, private messages. I'm, and, uh, you know, they'll the remain anonymous for out of respect, but it's it's crazy to me. I want this. This needs to be talked about. This needs to be... I I don't under. I guess I do understand why people want to keep their heads down. Nobody wants to be wrong. Like there's this like this worry that you're going to get things wrong. But the problem is because people aren't challenging the statements. We do have a lot of misinformation out there, and that doesn't help. It really doesn't. So hopefully people find themselves empowered to get into the conversation. I mean. Not a single one of us is an honest-to-God legal expert, but by goodness, we're doing the best that we can to understand what is going to impact us. And the only way we can do that is by talking to others who are having the same issues or are going to run into the same problems. So, But yes, and finally, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. I do hope you have had fun, even though we kept been. interrupting you. No, that's fine. <sighs> thank you ever so much for asking me to be back on. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> got a chance to rant about IR35. Do you have exactly. anything potentially, maybe, possibly that you might want to pimp? I mean, I have my own podcast all about .NET Core and Josie will be on an episode in January. Uh, I almost have a release date for that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I do, a, I've mentioned it a few times, I do a podcast about video games, Waffling Tailors. That's, uh, that's the one I'm building the Mega Drive game for because you know, want to know what it's like to build a Mega Drive game these days. So if you want to check those out, I can maybe send some links or I could just shout them out again. That's not a huge problem. But yeah, other than that, check out these guys more often. Listen to this show, definitely. Oh, we've got plenty of listeners. We don't need more listeners. Don't, don't, oh, well, guys. Well, don't listen no, to the no, show no. then. No, see, <laughs> no, I'm going to kick your butt. That's what I'm going to do. No, what I was going to say is Jamie has a gaming podcast. And what do Chris and I know very well besides, you know, Freelancing, consulting, and programming and development. Oh, uh, dogs, guinea pigs, games, gaming. Uh, okay. You should. You, this basically means you. You totally have to return the favor and have us come talk games with you. Definitely, definitely, absolutely. Yeah, um, I love you. Yeah, yeah yes. get in contact and we'll figure it out. <laughs> right. On you, Chris. So yes. Um, Thank you very much, everybody. And uh, you can visit our website on www.dnistream.live for links to all our social media channels, Discord, Dev Chat, and podcast discovery platforms. 
you can also use it to contact us for any reason give us feedback give us a funny dev story or get in touch about being guest on the show yes and we do hope to see you in the new year we have done it we have made it through another new year here at dni stream we won't be back until january Pay attention to our Twitter to know when. So all I have left to say is, Chris, it has been an absolute dream having a podcast with you this year. It's been all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's been wonderful. I thoroughly look forward to my Thursday nights. You know, I'm not going to make you a reef back Leviathan anymore. I'm going to turn you into a ghost Leviathan because you just come out of nowhere with that oh. stuff. The, it's the scariest game I've ever played and the most mm. satisfactory satisf if you haven't played I've Subnautica go and play it, I know this is not a gaming podcast but it is the, the most exhilarating experience mm. I've ever had, it really is such a wonderful game and the kudos to that. I can't wait for Sub-Zero Sub it's coming out soon I've played a little bit of it and I've got it, so I just good. haven't played it yet I bought uh, it to, I to back the, the development company, I want, I want to support them but I don't want to play it until it's ready, you know I, I will say this, um, you know, if you really want to see and have your brain explode, especially as a developer, um, play your way through Subnautica and then go watch a speedrunner play it. Oh, yeah, I've done that. I've, I I've love done. watching them break the games that I know about because it's just like, what? No way. That is so weird. But anyway, that's that's totally <laughs> diverging. We're now at a point where technically we need to say bye-bye. Jamie, absolute pleasure. And to all of you in chat, we will see you all next year. We'll, we'll have some announcements, some potential changes, and um, Chris won't be in the dark anymore. He'll actually have light on his face. You're shadowed. Why? What's wrong? What's wrong with my... It, you just look very shadowed. I mean, it's... Jamie and I are very bright in I, our camera. I, just, I did just shut down my, my document window, so I'm not getting the light from that anymore, but it was there a minute ago. I now have right. no beard. Anyway, right. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year. You have absolutely no neck at all. I mean, it's just you have beard, and that is it. I'm so jealous. You know what I need to do? I need to go back and find my beard. That's what I need to do. Anyway, yes, we'll see you guys all in the new year. Have a fabulous one. Much love from all of us here at DNI Stream. Bye bye. Bye. bye.